Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today is Robert Freed. Robert is a seasoned expert and industry thought leader with over 20 years of experience in data collection and forensic investigations. As Senior Vice President and Global Head of Sandlines Forensics and Investigations Practice, he leads day-to-day operations and oversees the forensic services offered to clients, including data collection, forensic analysis, expert testimony, and forensic consultation. Previously, he has held senior level positions in digital forensic practices at global professional services firms and worked as a computer crime specialist at the National White Collar Crime Center. He has developed and instructed computer forensics and investigative training courses for federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. Robert holds degrees in forensic science and certificates in law enforcement science, computer forensic investigation, and information protection and security from the University of New Haven. He serves on the board of advisors for the Master's in Investigations program at the University of New Haven and the Global Advisory Board for EC Council's Computer Hacking Forensic Investigator Certification. Robert is a licensed private investigator in Michigan and a licensed private investigator in New York. He's a frequent speaker at industry events, has been a guest on industry podcasts, and has been published in several professional publications. He has also authored the book Forensic Data Collections 2.0, The Guide for Defensible and Efficient Processes, and contributes to PI Magazine, where he created the Cyber Sleuthing Department and shares insightful content on topics related to digital forensics, e-discovery, data privacy, and cybersecurity. Thank you for joining me today, Rob. Yeah, well, first off, thank you very much for having me uh, on the show today. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. In terms of my background, I have a, a truly an interesting background. I, I come from the academic side. So when I got out of the University of New Haven with a bachelor's and a master's of forensics, the first thing that I wanted to do was essentially become certified in the field um, to show my knowledge level and really my passion uh, within the field and commitment to the field. So I started to kind of look to the different avenues of the certifications that are out there. And I attained about three or four of them once I kind of got really familiar with, um, you know, the, the specific tools and software. Um, I became a, a PI back in, I believe, 2017 if I'm not mistaken. Um, And at that time, it was really about continuing to build a good um, understanding of the investigation aspect of of the cases I was working on. You know, my background is in forensic science. I am familiar with forensic tools. But in terms of actually running an investigation, showing competency, um, I thought that was going to be a great way to build you know, my rapport with my clients, my existing clients, my new clients, to show that I really understood how to kind of navigate and formulate uh, the workflows necessary for an investigation and and to be licensed to do it. Um, There was also a big push in the forensic space in different states, if you're familiar with forensic practitioners having licenses. The first one I got was Michigan. Actually, uh, had a, a bit of a challenge in New York because of the criteria in New York, uh, but I went before the administrative judge and I proved my case. I said, 
I'm supervising PIs in different states, although I'm in New York, you know, I'd like to kind of have my experience um, reflected there. Um, so, you know, they, they actually listened to my case and uh, I won the, the motion and um, I'm very proud to have that, that license. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's talk more about digital forensics and uh, maybe a little bit of e-discovery at the end. But what are the most common mistakes you think private investigators, attorneys, fraud examiners make when they're trying to obtain digital evidence? Yeah, so the most cop, uh, common mistakes that I've seen is uh, people generally think that to make a forensic copy, it's a simple cut and paste um, out of Windows. So you know, you may be um, meeting with your client, they may show you the computer, and they may say, oh, all my stuff's here. Okay, so let's just make a copy of it. I, I brought a thumb drive with me today. And if they do that, the dates and the times, they change on the files. Um, there's, you know, that metadata associated with the files can change. Um, and just in general, you're, you're stepping on you know, potential really important information depending on the nature of your investigation. Um, there's also a lot of times when people think that forwarding of email messages is also appropriate. So let's say, you know, somebody received an email from somebody. Now it's a big part of the case. Hey, I'm going to just forward this to my investigator. I'm going to forward this to my lawyer. When you do that, um, it's generally speaking okay because email messages are in a container essentially they're in an msg a pst an ost they're always in some kind of container but the challenge with that is you lose the context between you know that whole thread um, of messages around that period of time if there are more but it's always good to collect you know within a date range um, and not do these individual forwards um, it's also not good for chain of custody as well uh, when you do that because you want to have a documented and structured approach. Um, the other thing that uh, always happens is calling upon the expert that needs to come in too late. So you already kind of, you know, uh, thought about this. People think about, you know, the, the value add of a forensic examiner coming in or an investigator. And what does that mean? And essentially... The challenge there is you want to engage people relatively soon when investigation kicks off so that all the relevant information can be kind of preserved, you know, collected in the most, you know, defensible and efficient way. I know it's so interesting in the world of forensic accounting. I kind of feel the same way about being involved a little too late in the game sometimes yeah. or and maybe not. Well, yeah, sometimes too late in the game. And just, it's like, oh, if only we'd been hired a little sooner, not at the very end of discovery, we could have helped you obtain additional information that would have been good for your side of the case. So yeah, yeah, I completely understand that. And a lot of the organizations that you and I belong to, you know, the, we have a good network of, of special specialists in different areas, right? So it's a matter of knowing to leverage those relationships that you have and the the resources that become available with a lot of those organizations. And, and I've become more and more familiar with the different specialties, even within the PI realm, uh, to know that there are other experts out there and it's okay to reach out and to have them on speed dial and to really build good relationships within your network with people so that this way there's you know a trust factor that goes beyond just looking somebody up on Google or, you know, through other methods. So what are some reasonable expectations? If I'm a client of yours, 
what are some reasonable expectations from digital evidence collection? And I'd like to go through four of them kind of individually. So I'm asking this question four times. First, what's a reasonable expectation from digital evidence collection as it relates to email? So um, we kind of touched on email before when I was saying, you know, don't forward. The the reality of, of email is, uh, we've gone away from everything being right in front of you. So your your servers, your ability to pull directly from, let's say, uh, the the systems that everybody's accessing and went from being on-premise to now being up in the cloud, right? So email collections can take time, you know, and that's one of the things that it's beyond our control now because we're relying on Microsoft, we're relying on all these different providers to basically search and, and export, uh, allow us to export, um, you know, that data. Um, I think also that uh, retention policies need to be thought about. The fact that, you know, some businesses don't uh, retain email for a very long uh, period of time. Emails, you know, still very much used. There's billions of emails transmitted, you know, and, and uh, exchanged every year. So, a lot of times the burden of the the organization to keep those messages for an extended period of time um, can cause people to you know delete emails and that becomes somebody's habit. And if there's no retention period or a legal hold in place, as we call it, then those emails can be gone. Um, and, you know, and there may be spoilation that becomes an issue down the road in court cases. But I mean, email expectations right now is that uh, sometimes you know, you, you may uh, find that the email is no longer there, um, that if it is there, that um, you want to just be a little bit conscientious about how to collect email. Sometimes a lot of my clients want to get down to the specific emails of interest to do a very targeted collection. I always say do a date range based collection versus a keyword based collection because certain documents don't actually allow you to search them. They're non-searchable, they're non-text-based. You know, sometimes people scan in PDF documents. Well, those are just PDF documents, they're images. They don't have the the text associated with them. So there's a lot of caveats there with email. So if someone has hired you to help them preserve emails and do a search on that. Do you provide the hosting platform for them to search that? Or are you collecting, preserving it, and then they have to find a way to open it or review it? Yeah. So the the end of the, the road for email is typically in a document review platform. So we essentially get it back um, you know, to our lab, we extract out the data, uh, and then we put it into a uh, data processing engine review platform uh, that then basically extracts the email messages, associates the attachments, and allows for a review, the the tagging, you know, and and association, and, and obviously further down the road, the, the production of that information. Okay, great. So what are reasonable expectations from digital evidence collection as it relates to social media? Social media is an interesting one, right? Because that actually helps us establish a timeline a lot of the times. And I always bring up the cases of like, for example, somebody's on, you know, workers comp claim and, you know, all of a sudden you look at their social media and uh, they're, you know, they're hiking uh, up in the Rockies or uh, the Appalachian, uh, trail and, and everything else like that. So, you know, the expectation is, is that um, you have the ability to get a lot of information from it. 
you know, what information is available to you when you go to somebody's, you know, um, public page versus wanting to look at their private posts and, and what they're saying in between uh, their, their connections and things like that. So what you can get from a private versus public is a lot more. Some people don't, you know, they use those security restrictions. And so you have to be really conscientious to get into the private uh, profile. What do you need? You need a username and password. You also need that for your email collections, by the way, as well as now a, a multi-factor authentication code. So you you can't just say, hey, give me your email address. Hey, give me your your uh, Facebook account, username, you know, and password. Now they've got to also give you the code to get in with multi-factor. Um, what you see on social media, um, you know, uh, if, if it's been deleted is something that we're not really going to be able to pull back because our software actually connects to the back end of the platform and pulls what's live on the system. Um, so that's also key. Um, and don't forget, you can have social media both on your phone and on your, your computers and other devices. Um, again, it, it's a the ability to pull from these is uh, based on the compatibility of the software that you're using. This stuff changes all the time. We may be able to collect from Facebook today and Facebook tomorrow is going to have a change that our software is not going to probably be able to support in some ways. So that's a constant uh, chase to keep on top of this and to keep our clients aware and to keep in good graces with our software uh, vendors and providers and partner with them to say, please let us know when there's a, a, a challenge uh, that we're going to face because we may not be able to get to all that data that we're after. So social media is very dynamic. It's not you know, uh, something that we have a guarantee each day that we're going to have connectivity to that as well. So in your collection of social media information, kind of two questions on this. One, are you often collecting this data without the subject's you know, knowledge? Is it more? It depends. So it, it can be both? It, it depends on what side you are and how, um, how cooperative everybody is, right? I mean, there are some cases where, you know, they're not going to give you the password. Um, and so what you do is you find the, the URL associated or the username associated with the account and you download what you can. Um, there are also, you know, uh, situations where uh, two parties become, uh, they, they chat about it and they establish a protocol. And they said, you know, uh, we will allow you access, but you're only going to be able to download from this period of time. You know, so there's, there's all stipulations that you can kind of collaborate with your all the different parties on the case to build a level of comfort, um, right? Everybody is kind of conscientious about what's on their social media platforms. Um, and sometimes you have, you know, Facebook, instant, uh, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, uh, you name it. And uh, we have to go and seek out all the different types of accounts that people have out there and really set the expectation. The one thing you have to also keep in mind about social media is how do you want to look at that in the end? Do you want to bring this into a courtroom? Do you want to look at the metadata aside from, you know, what you're seeing on the screen? Do you want to show the posts and all the replies? You know, thinking about your deliverable and how you're ultimately going to use this evidence and this information is key in a lot of cases. And I find a lot of people, they don't ask those questions early on, but the format of 
how you're ultimately going to use this is equally as important as sometimes getting the data because it may not even work out for your case if you're not presenting that data in a way that's compelling either to the jury or to whoever's you know, doing the uh, evaluation of the case. Yeah, for sure. Have you had any social media accounts either subpoenaed or required as part of discovery in a case? Oh yeah, that it's, it's more and more the case. I mean, I think it's happening a lot because you have competing businesses, you have intellectual property you know, disputes, you have people that leave organizations and they post um, on LinkedIn, hey, you know, so excited to be starting my new venture with an emoji and the emoji starts getting questioned. What do they mean by using that emoji? Let's collect the account. Let's make sure we preserve all this to show when this was posted and, and get an idea of the timeline, right? Forensics is all about the reconstruction of the timeline um, to help build the case. Yeah, love that. I, I, I was thinking, I don't think any of our cases have required uh, social media accounts as part of discovery or subpoena, but yeah, I'm sure it's just going to become like a normal, you know, discovery item, yeah. especially in divorce or like you mentioned, corporate disputes. Look at uh, Elon Musk, right? Every time he posts something on Twitter, the whole market, you know, starts going crazy. Right. Um, if you think about um, how that impacts social media, impacts the markets now, um, how it impacts, you know, the ability to uh, gain attention and influence out there. Um, there is a lot of that. Twitter is huge for that right now. Instagram is huge for that. I've had cases where people have posted pictures and used pictures inappropriately, you know, and basically used it as part of advertising for their uh corporation, the company, you know, um, the people found out about it and said, Hey, don't use my image. I never gave you permission. Mm, What's mm-hmm. this all about? Right. So it's becoming more and more prevalent. There's also, you know, social media bullying that's going on in cases where that social media, uh, posts is, or posts are going to be important for harassment, any type of kind of conflict that's going on between people, especially in the, the teenage and, and tweens and, um, they're they're on their phones and on social media day and night. Yeah, that's definitely an ever evolving and changing technology. You know, just the technology and like you said, all of the uh, the way all of these social media networks work and and accessing it. So definitely would be keeping me on my toes if I was yes. a digital forensics absolutely. expert. Absolutely. Uh, before we go into the break, I was curious, what types of cases in your career do you think digital forensics has just really played a critical, valuable role? And let me tell you, I was asked this question in 2003 or four. I was in Joplin, Missouri, teaching a class, and I got asked this exact question. It's a little bit younger then, um, but the question, you know, when I thought about it was, what types of, of investigations uh, are there where digital evidence isn't you know, part of it. And I'm going to tell you, it's, it's very rare. In fact, I I did an article with Dr. Henry Lee, um, several months back, and we showed how forensic concepts are really, uh, brought into every, um, investigation, every crime scene and digital evidence is more and more playing a role in almost every, uh, type of case. And, you know, we were kind of toying with each other because he said, oh, well, you know, you're on the digital evidence side. I'm looking at the DNA and the trace evidence on that phone and the fingerprints you can pull. And you're looking at the data that's on the phone. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, everybody can now 
say that they have a phone in their hands. Um, and so every case, digital evidence is always sought after and cell phone tower pings and, you know, trying to establish where, um, you know, people may have information even on their Fitbits to show their activity around a certain period of time in an area, uh, the GPS aspect of it. My, my lawn, uh, my sprinkler system is on IoT. My wife um, was begging me for a new washer and dryer. She's got IoT on the washer and dryer. I get notifications on my phone. So you people are ingrained with technology in their day-to-day that it would be very rare to find a case where there is no technology involved in something that happens, unfortunately. Yeah, totally makes sense. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you're involved in litigation or an investigation that deals with digital-based evidence, and it must be identified, preserved, collected, and examined. The book from author Robert B. Freed, Forensic Data Collections 2.0, is your one-stop resource and your ultimate guide. Author Robert B. Freed is Senior Vice President and Global Head of Forensics and Investigations at Sandline Global. He's a rigorous investigator with tremendous experience performing data collection and forensic investigations of electronic evidence. He shares his more than two decades of experience in this must-read book. Forensic Data Collections 2.0 is also for students, forensic enthusiasts, investigators, attorneys, and legal professionals who want to learn what to expect or the types of questions to ask. Forensic Data Collections 2.0 is available online at ForensicsBook.com and at all major retailers, including Amazon, Walmart, and Barnes & Noble. Order your copy right now. Forensic Data Collections 2.0 author Robert B. Freed. Welcome back to my conversation with Rob Freed. Rob, okay, on every Investigation Game podcast episode, just about, we have to ask our experts if they have a favorite case story of, you know, some sort of investigation. So for you, can you tell us about a favorite case story of successful digital evidence recovery or investigation? Yeah, the one that I I always love to think about is because, you know, we, we think about where data resides. I'm using a, a desktop computer right now. It's right in front of me. I save things locally to it. And in the background, I've got OneDrive saving files up to the cloud. I use Dropbox. You know, I back up in multiple places. So there was one case where we had only one thing from this person. And, you know, we had his computer, right? And, you know, the thing is, is on the computer, you know, you would think that you would have chat programs, you know, just like Teams and everything else that people are using. Um, but what Apple does is with all their devices, they have Apple uh, for iMac, you know, your iPhone, your iPad, that iMessage, right, is on all your devices. So it's basically sprinkling. It was almost like the pop uh, email where you download your email to this computer and to that computer. And, oh, you want to log into your email there? All your email gets downloaded. Well, there's the investigation. I'm looking at the computer and I'm seeing iMessages. Although I didn't have his phone, I'm getting the iMessage communication about how he's reaching out to his buddy in IT about what hard drive he should go pick up at Best Buy later on today to start copying off all these files before he's heading out of the company in a couple of days. So we've got the the Lacey 
you know, hard drive because it was a Mac. Um, we've got, you know, when he was intending to go to Best Buy to purchase it, his girlfriend was in the background saying, hey, honey, are you, you still doing okay at work? You getting ready to, to move all your stuff, you know, off to off to your own media? So, oh, yeah, I'm working on that right now. And then the IT guy is giving, you know, support. And um, it just shows you, you know, you may think that iMessage is just on your phone, um, but it syncs everywhere. So you can continue to communicate to your your friends and colleagues or whatever. Um, and it just shows you how people are just not aware of all these specific things, where their data resides, what kind of footprints there and, and, and traces of kind of activity they're leaving all over the place. Um, you know, so that, that was a real big win for the client. Another, another thing that I was going to mention is I got brought into this big, big, uh, the big, uh, box stores and, um, I was dressed in a, a suit coming in. I'm always doing, you know, from New York, always dressed properly. They thought I was from corporate. I, I was like, Oh no, I, I should have dressed a little bit more down. Um, but the case was come into our environment, take a copy of our entire server where we keep all our videos surveillance. Right. And to do a video surveillance job, that is a very memorable job because you have to use your senses, your eyes to actually look at this. You can't rely on automa uh, automation all the time. It's a manual process. And to go through hours and hours and hours of video to try to find that one person on a video that's the subject of everything um, was a very big eye opener to have a lot of patience to do this work, but also the importance of it. How how do you go about kind of deciding where to look and how to look? Um, so you look at different time frames and different snippets of the video. But as you know, we also have to think about how the software actually allows us to view the video clips. There are codecs and proprietary formats that you can't just pop this into anything. You have to use potentially that manufacturer of that video surveillance systems system to view it. And that's also not very easy. So, and how this stuff is all saved, it's all proprietary, you know, the folder structure may be snippets of information that the software puts back. So that was, a, you know, I, I've worked on several of those. I always get kind of brought in. I always, you know, collaborate with a lot of experts in that area also. But um, that's one of those cases where I had to sift through thousands and thousands and thousands upon videos. And although we have all this great software, there's still that human element that I always want people to remember. You're still testifying based on your review and your assessment. You just don't spit out the reports and give that to your client. You actually take a look and you you do that legwork for them so that they trust that you know you've you've looked through all that and you've made a judgment call. Right. That's kind of how I feel in the uh, financial di digital. I'm sorry, data analysis world. Like we have this lovely process that just recently published a book on our data sleuth process. And it's so handy, but it's really still just a tool. You can go and you can run all of the different reports that we recommend, create a macro for each one of them, automate whatever you want. But at the end of the day, there still is going to have to be some conversation with some real human beings and probably some uh, you know, possible email review, social media, you know, other OSINT 
sources, I mean, to provide some content and context. And so, yeah, it's we're not just letting a machine do the work. There is still, I completely agree, the human element, and especially when it comes to testifying. Yep. Congratulations, by the way. And I, I think that that's great to try to relate to people that, um, you know, as much software as we use, as much, you know, tools that we use, it's, it's a discipline that you're using your, your years of experience and knowledge and working on these types of cases to look at this the best way possible and really resort to what you know. Uh, and sometimes your tools are not going to be able to give you what you're looking for. Um, you need to use some of the old fashioned ways, unfortunately, um, you know, looking at it um, with, with a, a really keen eye um, to understand, you know, what's out there and the best way to explain that to your clients. Very consultative in the end. Right now, we're involved in a case where we started with all of our tools, right? Yeah. And matching data and doing joins and using idea and all these things. And then we discovered that that actually wouldn't work in this case. And what is actually going to solve the client's problem is completely rebuilding some account balances from the source documents, you know? There's no fast way of doing that. Yes. It's just document after document. So that's what it makes me think of when you're talking about the video. We can still have all this technology, but we still have to be, you know, critical thinking and problem solvers along the way to, to help those clients. So, okay, let's talk about your book. So if, if someone really wanted to learn the ins and outs of digital evidence, I'm curious, where would you recommend starting? And I hope that as part of this recommendation list, you're going to tell us about your book too. But just kind of big picture, how does your book fit in into helping somebody learn more about this space? And then what are some other resources you would recommend? Yeah, well, I've already gotten um, a, a really, you know, special review from somebody from the FBI. I had uh, somebody within the industry, within the e-discovery space come to me and say, hey, I shared this book with my my child, and now my child may want to go into forensics too. So oh, that's great. to me, that's the ultimate compliment, right? It's giving people a a, um, a view of what to expect. I have all these college students, university students, even on the grad level, come out, and they they just they haven't had a chance to actually touch evidence, to actually understand like what do I do on day one, like how do I go about this? Cause you can study about this in school and you can learn all the theories and low cards exchange theory and MD five hashing and metadata. But I tell you what you need to know, because when I started in this field, uh, I thought I was getting involved in forensics and I, I was told, you know, we're an e-discovery company. Are you okay with that? And I said, uh, sure. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Day one, you know, everything that I learned in school was kind of out the door. I mean, I learned about crime scenes and everything else. So what I do here is give you an understanding of what e-discovery is, what forensics is, what options you need to think about from a, from a forensic examiner's perspective, from a lawyer's perspective, from a legal professional's perspective, from a PI's perspective. Anybody who picks up this book is going to understand what they need to know and what they need to ask and who they need to speak to. Um, and that's why I wrote this, because that was a gap in the industry for a long time. The people that that I learned from or the people that basically formed the, the discipline of digital evidence, digital forensics. So I took it a step further and said, hey, I've been working corporate 
you know, uh, with corporate uh, companies for 20 plus years and law firms. Let me teach the, 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 the next generation a little bit about the overall picture chain of custody, documentation, how that goes into both of the law enforcement, public world, private world. So my book is out there. It's brand new. Um, you know, it's getting a lot of traction with both the, the law firm side of it. Um, where else can you find me? I, I, I write for PI Magazine. I write on the cutting edge uh, topics in my cyber sleuthing column. I approached uh, Jim and Nicole a couple of years ago and said, I have an idea. I want to write about forensics, digital forensics topics on, on things that PIs need to know. And they said, that's a great idea. So every issue I write on those topics, you know, that are really important that I keep on top with. I just wrote a thing on uh, cryptocurrency. I'm writing another one um, with my interns at Sandline uh, on uh, lab accreditation, digital forensics lab accreditation, all topics that people want to go to a trusted source, somebody who's actually doing the work that can, you know, relay the information to them and understand kind of their needs as well from the PI's perspective, but just anybody's perspective. Like this is important stuff to know. It's, you know, you can go to Robinhood, Coinbase, you can buy crypto now. What do you need to know about crypto? Who do you call, right? I mean, you know, th these are all questions. Forensic Focus is another great resource. They're a great website that has a lot of professionals in the industry for a long time that vet the information that goes up there. Um, it's really, really a, a good resource. Um, EC Council, um, which, which you mentioned, I'm part of their board of advisors. I'm doing cyber talks with them uh, continuously. I have one coming up next week, uh, May 13th. And, you know, that whole... Um, organization vets their stuff. Even when I write stuff, they, they read through it two or three times. Um, you know, but I think the first step is take a look at, um, all those different resources and see if there's any symposiums that you can go to as well. I just did one with Dr. Uh, Henry Lee, uh, people from Celebrite, uh, uh, Parabin, um, uh, cloud nine was there, um, forensic email collector, uh, I have all these kind of relationships from over the years that we all came together and shared our knowledge for a day. And I think the, the charge on that was $25 for students and $125 for adults. And we gave a whole day training. I mean, that's, that's amazing to hear from people that are on the cutting edge of, of forensics. And really, we want to encourage the next generation. So we put on these events and I personally sponsored that with uh, Henry Lee and, and myself and, and uh, put that whole program together with him. So it was a really neat opportunity. Well, it's so great to meet professionals like yourself that are willing to share from experience and provide like practical hands-on. This is how you do it. Uh, that's really refreshing. And so I just really appreciate your time, Rob, today, taking time Thank to talk you. with me. And if any of our less listeners would like to connect with you or learn more about your book, what are the best ways to do so? Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I think my profile name is Robert B. Freed, F-R-I-E-D. Um, you can look at my book's website, forensicsbook.com. I still don't understand how I got that, that uh, website address. Um, and you can also email me at uh, rfried, R-F-R-I-E-D, at sandlineglobal.com, S-A-N-D-L-I-N-E-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. And also rob at robfried.com if you just want to reach out to me. 
uh, in general and ask me questions. Happy to always be of help. Well, great. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure and we'll make sure to link to your contact information and your book website in the show notes. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much. Great to be here today. Thank you for listening to the Investigation Game podcast. For more information on any of the topics brought up on this show, visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also connect with us on any social media platform by searching Workman Forensics. If you want to learn more about using data and forensic accounting engagements and fraud investigations, make sure to check out my book, Data Sleuth, available on Amazon or anywhere else you like to buy your books.